0: For the second time, Dr. Richards. I I love the setup of this conference because it's doing things that, uh, it solves a problem that I'm always frustrated with because I talk constantly about the intersection of Catholic social teaching and, and theology and some public issues, science, economics, in this case, climate science. Um, and always end up just getting to talk about that and having to presuppose the theology. Uh, It's nice to get the theology fleshed out. Um, I'm trying to quit using that phrase fleshed out when I found out what the the literal meaning of it was, but I'm still stuck with it. Sorry. Um, And so what I want to do this morning here in a few minutes, I'm going to give you a lot of stuff. Don't, I don't expect you to remember all the kind of scientific details, but I, we're not going to go deeply enough that I hope we, you know, you sort of get lost if you're not interested in this stuff. But to give you a way of thinking about this issue, about the, uh, you know, how do we connect what we believe as Catholics, what Christians in general believe about the created order, the goodness of God's creation, good, good but fallen. Uh, with all these questions about climate science and climate change and environmental stewardship. This is one of these issues in which I would say the faith has the resources for a robust environmental ethic. That is an ethic of, of care of the creation quite apart from anything that happened in the 20th century with the environmental movement. And so it's one of these things that I think the church hasn't spent a lot of time reflecting on simply because it wasn't until recently that humans had a sense that, well, what we do could actually affect the health of the planet. I mean, a thousand years ago, no one would have thought of that because it would have been so implausible because human activity was in in some ways so local and so trivial. It's only when we think, gosh, you know, our actions at least collectively can have an effect at least on the local environment and maybe the, the global environment as a whole. The problem is is that the movement, uh, the environmental movement, as it developed, the initial goals that it had, that succeeded spectacularly. So, if you look at actual actual pollutants in the air and the water in the United States, just from 1970 to the present, uh, has been overwhelmingly successful. And so, the movement, especially uh, starting in the 80s and the 90s, uh, moved in a particular direction that focused so much of its attention on this idea of climate change or global warming and in some ways confused it and actually quit talking about some of these more traditional environmental causes it got so bad that patrick moore who's a co-founder of greenpeace international finally left the organization uh, after some decades and he was uh, his passion was actually sort of saving whales that were being killed off um, And he said I realized because he was a trained scientist that I had to leave when the board voted overwhelmingly to start a global campaign to ban chlorine all right so ban, something that's a basic chemical, you know, that you can't ban. It would be like saying we're gonna ban lithium or something like that. Um, <laughs> he also knew that whatever the costs of chlorine were, it probably saved the lives of billions of people through water purification. And so and he, so, this is Patrick Moore, uh, who's very much on the left politically, but he said what happened around 1990 and even before that is that the kind of global Marxist movements, which were focused on economic issues, Collapse with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Those activists didn't change their world views. They just realized we've got to change tactics. And he said they ended up with this influx of reds into the green movement, in which many of the same arguments they had been making previously on economic grounds they just transferred and started focusing on the health of the earth. So you get the same economics. Um, just people realize, okay, nobody's going to buy our Marxist economic arguments, let's, let's frame it in terms of environmental stewardship. So we're in this position of having to say, on the one hand, we should perfectly be able to develop an environmental ethic that's as robust as anyone's, um, based simply on uh, scripture. Uh, And yet, the environmental movement has become so inimical so that now many of the most prominent people in the environmental movement are deeply anti-human or deeply misanthropic. Uh, The the cause of uh, radical population control and sort of hair-raising stuff that you'll get from people, especially in the deep ecology movement, creates this kind of tension. And especially in this issue about climate change, it requires that we have some opinion on very detailed scientific questions that involve uh, uh, paleoclimatology, the study of the ancient climate, uh, solar physics, uh, climate science, meteorology, there's several others, um, chemistry. Uh, all Climate science isn't a single thing. It's a scientific interdisciplinary enterprise. No one's an expert on all the sort of subsets. So you have to have that. And then you have to uh, somehow integrate that into your theology. So it's very hard. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the theology because I actually think the kind of theological principles are. Um, hmm, let's see here. TJ, the slide thing's not working. It's not going anywhere. Shall we restart? Oh, yeah. OK, good. It's not showing up here, though. That's odd. Let me try it again. OK. Can we restart? I'm going to just restart. Let's see here. I may need to have you come down. Um, It's showing right here, but it's just not working on mine. So. So here's the, why we should care. If you're wondering why you should care about environmental stewardship, these are themes that were in uh, Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical Laudato Si, which is a very long document. I, I suspect almost none of you have read it. It's got a lot of good stuff. It's got some things that I think are uh, in science are just, are just mistaken. Uh, but the magisterium doesn't have particular or unique competence when it comes to the precise sensitivity of the climate carbon dioxide. So if you thought that was a major teaching of of The Catholic Church, it's not. It's a very specific scientific question on which Catholics can can disagree. Um, And so when you say, well, how should Catholics think about uh, environmental stewardship and climate change? I think the environmental stewardship stuff is perfectly straightforward. And you can get this um, in a lot of different ways, even just from the first chapters of Genesis. First of all, obviously, human well-being. Human dignity and the value of the human person means we have to have some interest in the environmental world because we're a part of it. Uh, We not only live within an ecosystem, but our bodies are themselves ecosystems that host several trillion bacteria that we actually depend upon for our lives. So we're sort of part of this whole, we're made of chemicals, we have bodies, We need energy and all these sorts of things. So we're directly connected to the created order, at least not all of creation exactly, right? Our relationship to the Andromeda galaxy isn't the same as our relationship to the earth. Um, But at least with respect to the part of the created order we have some effect over. So that's essentially the surface of the earth and maybe 10 miles below the earth and a few hundred miles above it. That's the only part of the created order we could have really any effect on. And so simply from human well-being, you should say we should be concerned if we're putting poison in the water or in the air or something like that. Secondly is just the command in Genesis 1 in which God tells the man and the woman, uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea. You know the text. Um, Now, the dominion here is not domination and destruction. It is the dominion of the benevolent king who creates man and woman in his image, and then gives them as stewards, right? Sort of vice regents, uh, responsibility over it. So God is the king of the universe. Um, And yet he says, okay, I'm going to leave you with a bunch of responsibility over it. And I'm going to even give you so much responsibility that you have the capacity to improve it and to transform it for good causes, or even maybe mess it up and destroy it. But that's the kind of dominion that's being talked about. And so any environmental stewardship that's properly Christian is going to see our interaction both as a part of nature, but also not as an alien to nature. So we are a part of the created order. And so part of what it means to be made in the image of God is to transform the earth uh, for various good purposes. As opposed to saying the best ideal would be us uh, not touching anything. Right? That's, a, that's a competing environmental ideal. I don't think that's the Christian environmental ideal that the best nature is a nature without human beings. There's nothing like that, certainly in the biblical picture. And that's where you get the idea of the stewardship of the natural world, like Adam naming the animals, that we have some uh, not obvious, not easily specified re- uh, responsibility for this created order over which we're actually able to touch some of. Oh, is that what it is? So I'm going to be up there, and if you need me to change slides. Just do this? Yeah, okay. but you should be fine. Okay, so it's Wi-Fi. Okay, so let's, um, well. No. Phil, click the slide. <laughs> the Sorry, we're having Wi-Fi problems. I'll, I'm going to do this for now. If you get it working, I'll bring it. Right. Yeah. There Here it is, okay. So here's basic climate change. So I'm gonna give you a brief argument and what you might not know if you don't follow this issue is there's a bunch of stuff on this subject that is completely uncontroversial. Um, And so I'll tell you that this isn't controversial when we get to the thing over which there is actual debate Yes, there is actual debate among scientists and people that are informed about major issues in this debate. I'll tell you then when, when we're at that because you might be surprised where the debate actually is and where it's not. So here's the basic claim about climate change. It's, it's three things and the only reason we're interested in it is because the term climate change is a bundled term that bundles three different claims together. First is just that there is climate change, right? So now that's not just the trivial idea that, well, the climate changes. Of course, it does that all the time. Uh, It is that there's some kind of unprecedented change that's happening in the climate. So if you sort of pick a particular time period from 1870 to the present, the claim is that there's a a sort of historically unprecedented change happening in the climate. Um, in, In particular, a type of warming uh, of the of the Earth's atmosphere. Second, that it's largely human induced. So, in other words, yeah, you might be having climate change, but is it the, if it's the result of a meteor impact, right? Then we're not going to necessarily have a policy about that unless we could blow up the meteor or something like that. It's that we're at least sixty percent of the cause for this un, unprecedented change. And then third, that it's catastrophic. You could have climate changing, and we could be the entire cause of it. But unless it's really bad and happening quickly, there again, there wouldn't be any sort of thing for us to do about it. So that's the basic idea. But notice that those always get bundled together. So if you see this, this Time magazine cover, you get these covers every, every April during Earth Week and Earth Day. Uh, and here notice it says, be worried, be very worried. Now just briefly think, I want you to see how Um, bundling these together does so much rhetorical work. Uh, Notice the picture is of a polar bear standing on a sort of chunk of ice and he's looking into the water. Now think for a minute what time wants you to think that picture means, because by itself it's a picture of a polar bear looking in the water, right? But clearly they want you to interpret that picture as the ice caps are melting, the polar bear is on the edge of the ice, he's gonna drown. Right now, I can assure you that that is a picture of a polar bear either getting ready to dive into the water or waiting for a seal to come up for air. Uh, and in fact, there was a picture a few years ago of these, these polar bears on this much larger iceberg, three of them, one was in the water and one was on, down low and one was up high. And it was used for one of these covers and the photographers actually objected uh, and, and had to be removed. Uh, and the reason is that the polar bears uh, in the picture were actually playing in the water. It was that they were diving into the water and then getting back up on the ice. It had nothing whatsoever to do with, uh, you know, they, they're going to drown or something like that. So, but notice only if you've got climate change, that's in this case warming. Um, it's human induced. So it's something we should feel bad about and it's catastrophic. It's gonna kill the polar bears. Do you, does it, do you have any sort of interest in this? Even though, notice these are all three different claims, right? All right, so that's the basic, uh, that's the basic claim. And here's the basic argument. It's really straightforward, not that controversial. Uh, increases, is, here's the first premise. Increases in carbon dioxide and other, greenhouse ga- uh, and other gases lead to a greenhouse effect. All right, that's the the first claim. The second is that the temperature has risen, that is the average global temperature, uh, has risen over the 20th century while greenhouse gases have increased due to human activities. Greenhouse gases here refer to gases that at sort of ambient temperatures in the environment Uh, have three atoms. So they're molecules that have three atoms. So carbon dioxide, methane, and water vapor. And this just has to do with physics so that infrared radiation can excite these three atom molecules, and that makes them sort of have these higher energy states. So that's why they're called greenhouse gases. And then three, therefore, greenhouse gases are probably the cause. Now, this isn't just a correlation causation fallacy. The correlation causation fallacy says, okay, just because A or B follows A, it doesn't mean that A caused B, right? That's just a mere correlation. So for instance, I could point out that in 1977, the first Star Wars film came out. And if you track um, 1977 to 2018, you will discover a dramatic historically unprecedented increase in obesity and type 2 diabetes, all right, um, and so a correlation argument would be, well, so uh, Star Wars must cause type 2 diabetes and obesity. That's mere correlation, and the reason you know it's mere correlation is there's no, you don't have any causal theory to, to connect these two things, but in this case, we do. We have both temperature going up during this time and a, a sort of theory by, about what might cause that, an increase in greenhouse gases and they're called greenhouse gases because simply to think of them simply they sort of trap heat energy like a greenhouse would you know you can be in the middle of a desert it can be 20 degrees uh and inside the greenhouse it's very warm and it's because it's holding infrared uh radiation into it so that's the basic idea the basic argument so this is my clicker hand here (laughs) And so the, 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 the physics here is well understood. You get energy coming in from the sun, right? And the sort of visible part of the spectrum is a bunch of it. It hits the ground. Uh, then energy is released in the form of heat or infrared radiation. Some of it finds its way back out into space, but some of it gets captured in a sense. Uh, think of it as being captured by these particular atoms of which carbon dioxide is one. The overwhelmingly most important one is water vapor, but carbon dioxide is another of them, all right? So that's just the basic idea. Again, not controversial. Uh, and here's a, just a, sort of another idea. So the claim of, uh, of global warming is that as you add carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, you keep getting the same average amount of incoming sunlight energy, but the Earth radiates less of the thermal radiation, that is the heat, less of it gets sent back out into space. And so there's the balance gets thrown off and you end up trapping more Uh, uh, more heat into the atmosphere now we know the greenhouse uh, effect is it's not only real it's very very important if we did not have this uh, the earth would be basically uninhabitable by uh, probably us or it would be a few humans in the warmest parts of the climate it'd be much 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 colder if we didn't have this effect so it's actually a very valuable effect that we have all right so The question about the increase in carbon dioxide is also not controversial. This is a graph uh, from the Mauna Loa Observatory. So there's an observatory that tracks carbon dioxide in the atmosphere on the top of a mountain in Hawaii. And it's very good because the atmosphere there is mixed over the Pacific. So it's like you can get one measurement in one spot and get a representative sample of the atmosphere on on the whole planet. And so what you can see here on this graph from 1960 uh, to the present is a fairly steady increase in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So not a huge amount. About if you start at the start this back, say in the 18, late 1800s, it was about 300 parts per million, and now we're uh, getting up close to 400 parts per million. So still very much a trace gas, right? Well, way less than 1%, obviously, um, but there is an increase, and you see the variation there, that the little jagged part of the line. That's because the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere changes depending upon the temperature. Um, the oceans absorb more when it's colder, so, so different, time, different seasons, you get a variation. But you can see that the amount of carbon dioxide is going up, um, and there's good reason to think that this is largely the result of human industrial activities. Virtually everything that we do in terms of developing energy um, has some kind of effect on this. Even though it's obviously not a huge amount, there is an amount. All right. So now that's the background. So nothing I've told you here at this point is at all controversial. And among those that debate this subject, the scientific details, that's not for, most, for the most part where the debate is. Here are the four big questions. You forget everything else, take a picture or write these four questions down. Because this is the way to think about this issue, because there is not a Catholic answer uh, to what is the optimum global temperature. There's not a uniquely Catholic answer to what is the precise sensitivity of the atmosphere to CO2. Those are very specifically scientific questions uh, that that aren't dependent upon anything in Catholic theology, um, one way or the other. Uh, And so it's easy to kind of mix up uh, the different questions. If you hold these four questions in your head, Um, you will, I think, you'll be better off than 95% of the population when it comes to thinking about this, this issue. First question is just, is the earth warming? So I mentioned climate change a minute ago, but climate change is a package idea that describes both the things that are supposed to result from global warming, great, more powerful hurricanes, droughts, stuff like that, with the thing that's supposed to cause that, which is global warming, all right? Um, climate change is also useful because everything counts in its favor, right? Whereas global warming is such a specific claim. Um, but the key claim is, okay, are we actually in a warming trend? Is that true or false, given some, some baseline? Second, are we causing or contributing to it? Again, this is an empirical question. What's happening? And a what's causing it question. Those are two different questions, the sea levels could be rising, there could be droughts, hurricanes could be much more catastrophic, polar bears could be drowning uh, by the droves. That would tell you nothing about what would, is causing that. Those are two different questions that often get run together. Third question is, is it bad? Now this is a question that if you've never thought of before, you might wonder, why is no one ever asked that? We should. Right? I mean, it's not obvious That if the Earth were a little warmer, it would be on balance bad. Any change is going to have costs and benefits, but we don't know uh, just immediately from first principles that maybe maybe things would be better if it was a little warmer. Far more people die, for instance, um, of of cold rather than heat. Energy expenditures are much greater during cold than heat, so you know it should be at least a question worth considering. Then, four: Would the advised policies make any difference? because that's, that's usually um, the reason this plays into politics and social ethics and social justice is that we assume that there's a policy that could be implemented that would somehow affect it. But the earth could be warming. We could be causing it. It could be a disaster. And yet we spent, still might not have any policies that would make a, a bit of difference. And so again, so notice I'm, there are several different ways to answer all of these questions, but they're all actually separate questions. So let's, I'm, I'm gonna structure the rest of the talk along these questions. So first is, is the earth warming? So in general, and this is two different data sets, one is from the UK and one is from the United States uh, from 1850 to, to, uh, to 1990, um, seem to agree. You can see the sort of overlap here Uh, in the colors rough agreement that there has been a warming trend from about 1850 or 1870 to the present uh, of about one and a half degrees Fahrenheit all right so a warming trend that means averaging out all the sort of places you can measure and for a lot of this these were ground-based Um, measuring uh, stations there's all sorts of problems with that data set Um, the satellite data that we have much more recently is actually much much more reliable it confirms the kind of basic picture is that you have this this warming trend since 1850 all right so that one I'd say if you date it from 1850 and say is it warmer now than it was in 1850 on average yes it's about a degree and a half warmer Now here's the sort of irony, and most of you, oh no, it's gone dark both in front of me and behind me. (laughs) It'll come back, here we go. This is another interesting issue we're having. It's coming on and off, but um, as you can see, the visuals are really important here. Otherwise, I'm just waving my hands. It looks like I'm making stuff up. Um, So this is the University of Alabama Huntsville uh, uh, satellite-based temperatures. So very, very reliable stuff. Um, this is So remember, the theory predicts that as we increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you're going to get an increase in temperature. And as it happens, in the last 30 years or so, we have been putting about twice as much. For a long time, we were just adding about one part per million per year to the atmosphere. More recently, because of China and India, it's more like two parts per million per year. So we've added a lot more in the last 30 years than we did certainly in the first you know, 100 or so. Uh, And yet there was this really weird, uh, perfectly stable climate. What you're seeing is variations here, but notice they're tenths of a degree. But the actual average running temperature from um, even all the way back to 79, but certainly from 1998 until 2016, there was no change at all. Just back and forth. Now everybody heard about 2016 because it was an El Nino year and it was warm and that's when you got all the hysterical uh, news about, the, okay, global warming has started again, right? And then guess what happened? Uh, the following years we got a lot La Nina and it settled back down. But notice 1998 was also an El Nino year. You can see it because that other big spike. All right, so this, this is a, 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 an anomaly for the theory uh, because it should conti- we should continue to see warming. The other thing is that most of these discussions focus just on the very recent past. So uh, everything you've seen so far is actually over here, right, so that's sort of 1850 to the present. And if you look at that, it looks like, gosh, there's a real sort of dramatic increase in the warmth. Uh, But let's just run this back a little farther, all right, till the year one. Uh, Notice how different this looks now. So this is the variations in temperature. I'm not gonna go into the details about how we measured this. Um, but what you notice is very dramatic variations over larger timescales. So the Roman warm period about the time of Christ when he was on the earth uh, was probably a degree or two uh, warmer, uh, at least as warm as it is now. A 1,000 years ago, during the medieval warm period, uh, when my ancestors settled a place called, they called Greenland, stupidly, um, right? Because it was green at the time, right? And then mostly, had to abandon it. Uh, and by, by the time of the American founding, it, it's now, uh, geologists call this the Little Ice Age because it was unusually cold, uh, say, around 1776. And we have been roughly warming ever since then. So you notice how your perspective changes completely now if you just add 2,000 years. Uh, the medieval warm period 1,000 years ago was warmer than it is today. And I think the polar bears have been around longer than 1,000 years, so somehow they, they survived it. All right. So, and obviously we were not adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere in these early, in any significant way. The reason we talk about 1850 to the present is the Industrial Revolution. So what that means is that just looking at the data, merely over a 2,000 year period, the noise of natural variation swamps whatever signal of human activity you might claim to detect. The amount of variation, the total amount of variation uh, from 1850 to the present is well within the range of natural variation. And so to be able to say, okay, which part of this is natural variation and which part of this is human caused, you have to be able to separate the signal and the noise. But if the noise, right, is the the variable of the noise is larger than the signal, you can't do that. So it's actually how much humans are contributing to climate change or whatever's happening in the climate is just mostly a speculative question based upon the data. We can have instincts. I think it's hugely likely that things that we do, not just carbon dioxide, but building parking lots and you know, reclaiming land, those have effects on the climate. We know they do locally. Um, if you build a city, it's gonna be three or four degrees warmer there than it was when it was country. Um, and so that, that's not a question. The question is, okay, what's exactly the contribution and how much do we affect it versus these kind of not well understood variations? All right, let's work our way back. I, we've done 2,000 years. This is uh, back uh, essentially you know, 12 or 13,000 years, all right? So the last ice age, right? So notice how much colder it is. Notice the, the drama here. So it's above red, it's, it's a baseline. The baseline is 15 degrees Celsius, all right? Um, uh, and so the red means it's above it and the blue means it's below it. Uh, notice the medieval warming period over there. the the Roman climate optimum. And then notice uh, these two Holocene climate optimums. Holocene is just this kind of period of human history since the last glacial period, essentially. Notice how much warmer uh, it is for long periods of time. And then notice this terrible ice age here and how much more dramatically cold it was. So if you're gonna worry about the climate uh, and things that can happen, that can happen. Um, We have been warming since the last ice age. In fact, we're in a period called an interglacial. So to say that the earth's warmed since 1850 is not to say very much. It's that, well, it's been doing since 1850 what it's been doing since uh, 11,000 BC, right? All right, so this, that's, a, that's a huge perspective. And I could run this back a few hundred million years, and it would get even more dramatic, including how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere. There were times when carbon dioxide was orders of magnitude larger than it was uh, now. And you had variation, but you had nothing, you know, nothing sort of catastrophic. All right, does that make sense? All right. So the second question, the kind of interesting and important one is, are we causing it? In particular, is what we are doing with our industrial activity, uh, you know, pulling oil out of, out of the ground and refining it and burning it and releasing carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere, is that the major cause of the warming? Right, well, as I mentioned already, we know the signal noise problem is gonna make this very hard. But here's something you probably do not know. Um, If you thought carbon dioxide had some kind of special property, because a lot of people say, well, so there's not a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, even when we're adding it, it's a trace, it's just a trace compound. Um, So what's the worry that this is going to be sort of catastrophic? Well, there is, there's a reason for that theoretically. What you might not know is that from the physics alone, the effects of carbon dioxide are diminishing. So in other words, the more carbon dioxide you add to the atmosphere, if you're just focusing on the carbon dioxide, the less effect it will have. It's called the logarithmic effect. Uh, and, and the reason is because it eventually kind of gets, basically saturates the effect that it's going to have in the atmosphere. And so here, the, here's the basic idea. And this is this is known from physics. This is basic lab physics is that uh, for the kind of range under question, you could expect about one degree Celsius of warming for every doubling of the CO2 that you put into the atmosphere, for every doubling. So in other words, at 200, uh, let's say we start at 200 parts per million. Then when you go from 200 to 400 parts per million, you're gonna add a degree of warming. To get another degree of warming, you're gonna have to add 400. To get another degree of warming, you're going to have have to add 800. Do you see the idea? And so, in other words, you keep having to add more and more and more to get less and less warming from carbon dioxide. And at some point, it actually just almost does nothing in terms of warming. So the question is, why then the worry about some kind of catastrophe? What's this idea of a runaway greenhouse effect? Well, that's not based on physics. That's based on a particular theory uh, of what's called climate sensitivity. And so, and what this refers to is not just carbon dioxide, but all these complicated factors having to do with the climate. Because remember, the climate's not just, right, it's not just sort of some gases sitting there. They're all sort of complicated interactions with plant life and land and water uh, and cloud cover and ice caps and all these kinds of things. And so the the idea, the question is, are there feedbacks in the climate that will make the effects of carbon dioxide greater or lesser? Right, so there's two kinds of feedbacks. There's a positive feedback. And what a positive feedback does is says, okay, if I do this thing here, it's going to magnify the effect. So I might, it, horm, hormones in your body are working on this principle. You can slightly change the amount of estrogen or testosterone in your system and dramatically change what your body does that's a positive feedback does that make sense so you do a little of something and it goes whoop. a negative feedback is if it is an effect in which if you do something it leads to another thing that counterbalances and offsets the effects and the this is where the entire debate is if you want to know where the debate on this is it's this question of climate sensitivity are most of the the feedback's positive, so that if there's a little carbon dioxide, you end up with all these effects that make it much worse? Or are they all negative? Or is it some mix in between? This is literally where the almost the entire debate is. And the fact that the media is incapable of explaining this should, show, should tell you the media is incapable of talking about this issue. If you're reading something on this subject, from this is, it's probably a 27-year-old recent college grad with a BA maybe in journalism that knows nothing about what he or she is talking about trying to interpret this stuff. It's a a complete disaster. And so you'll never hear this. So if you forget, I always say if you forget everything else, if you want to know what the debate is about, it's about climate sensitivity. Now, here's the idea. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I know it's a little bit in the weeds, but I want you to understand it. So this is an assumed positive feedback. All right. So you get a change and the temperature's warm, right? So the warmth warms the oceans, it warms the ice caps. As a result of an increase in warmth, uh, you get the sea ice cover melting and shrinking. Now, sea ice does a different thing than an ocean does. So one's more reflective, one is more uh, absorptive, all right? Uh, So there's a melting and a shrinking. Ocean waves absorb more solar radiation than the highly reflective sea ice. So rather than reflecting it in space, you're now getting an absorption. Temperature's warm because it's being absorbed in the ocean. And again, sea ice cover melts and, shr- and, and shrinks and you get that over and over. That's the idea of a positive feedback. Now here's the problem. I said it's assumed positive feedback, and the reason is because we don't actually understand many of these feedbacks. In particular, notice what's missing here, cloud cover. Uh, when, when sea ice melts and you get a warming of the oceans, you get more clouds. And so the question is, is the total activity of clouds positive or negative? Is it cause there to be more radiation or to have more radiation bounce back? All of the models that you hear about, the computer models that project what the climate's going to do, they're predictions, remember, those aren't evidence. The climate models can only tell you, based on your assumptions put in the model, what do we think will happen? Those models all assume that all the climate feedbacks are positive. In other words that everything in the climate is going to work to make the effects of carbon dioxide more dramatic than they would otherwise be that's what all of the models assume the observations discover exactly the opposite that the models never predict accurately what actually happens which suggests that some of these uh, either other things we don't know about other feedbacks we don't know about are actually negative so they counteract uh, the effects of CO2, um, or, or some that are, we think are positive or negative, or maybe there's some we don't know about. So let me just show you this, so you, uh, you don't have to believe me. So this is, uh, this is just a, a diagram describing the predictions of the 44 major computer models, or about 100, but these are the 44 most important that you would hear about if you read the UN uh, uh, Climate Committee's uh, uh, assessments on climate change. Um, and this is the model predictions. And so notice this is called a spaghetti diagram. Can you all see those little colored things out there? Um, all right, so what, so what we've got is starting from 1975 going out to 2025. These are the predictions of climate models. Now, do you notice how over here in 1975, the models seem to get be close? And then the farther out you get, the more scattered they get. The reason is that models get retrofitted. So once you know what the climate's actually done, you might have a model, you can fiddle with the variable so that it matches what's already happened, (laughs) all right? So it's easier to match your model to stuff that's already happened than the stuff that hasn't happened yet. And so it always looks like they're more accurate, but what's happening is that they're making predictions going forward. So if you'll notice, the range is a huge kind of variation here, but if you look at that black line going up, that's the average, so the models all on average predict a particular rate of warming. Now look at the red and the blue lines. You see those? One says UAH and one says RSS. All right, two different ways of measuring the climate. So these are really reliable ways of measuring what's actually happening in the climate. Show a completely different line. In fact, none of the models is accurate with what we're actually observing. The models predict about two to two and a half times the warming that actually happens. So if you're objective, you would say, okay, there's something wrong with the models. We need to fix the models. You don't say, well, the you know the universe must be wrong. Uh, you know, uh, you, you say there's something wrong with the theory. That's just what you're supposed to do in science. And instead they keep saying, well, uh, ignore that. But if you notice that this continues, what's gonna happen is the observations are gonna get farther and farther and farther out of line Uh, with the models. And in fact, if you look at what you would expect from CO2 alone, the observations are matching it perfectly, which suggests tentatively that whatever feedbacks there are, they more or less cancel each other out uh, at some level. And that's what you would expect geologically, because we know of previous times when the CO2 was much higher than it is now, and there wasn't a runaway greenhouse effect. So it suggests the climate has some way of balancing this out and accounting and adjusting like a metabolism for variations in the sun's energy and uh, what's in the atmosphere. Does that make sense? So just based on the observations, there's something wrong with these model theories that predict a much more dramatic rate of warming than we actually observe. Third question, is it bad? I know this is probably considered bad taste even to raise this question, but this is, this is what I do, unfortunately, is raise these uh, tasteless questions. Uh, but you wouldn't actually know the answer to this question unless you knew what the optimum temperature was. The, uh, let's say the optimum temperature for, for human existence, On so the average temperature, what exactly is that? We don't know. We don't know exactly. It's very hard to say, okay, there'd be costs and benefits, you can kind of run rough calculations. But there's no reason to assume that the temperature in 1850 was the optimum. There's no basis for that at all. Uh, As you've seen, the temperature varies dramatically. Um, Even the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, so that's the committee of the UN, in its most recent report, actually admitted that moderate warming in the short run is actually better rather than worse, probably. So they had to say, well, but it will get really bad, but it's going to be like 80 years from now. And this is common sense. If it's warmer, you have longer growing seasons. Uh, fewer people are going to freeze to death, things like this. Um, and so unless you know the optimum temperature, you don't know whether we're moving toward it or away from it. Right? If it's here and we're above it, then that's bad. If it's here, then warming, we're getting closer to it. There, I can tell you, there are no really rock solid arguments on this, except if anything, there's an agreement that probably a point slightly warmer than it is now uh, would be optimal, at least for human existence. I suspect the optimum temperature would be different for maybe some of the cr- critters that we compete with. So even, you know, it's actually really hard to say. The other thing um, is you might think, okay, well, what about all these kind of catastrophes we're hearing about, the dramatic sea level rise, the increased hurricanes and tornadoes, the shutdown of Atlantic Ocean circulation, melting of polar ice caps, increased droughts, increase in insect-borne diseases. You might think, okay, well, these are all these terrible things. Uh, there's only one problem, is that if you actually look at the data, so that's me clicking it. Yeah, there it is, I needed that, right? None of this stuff's happening. Uh, in any kind of historically unprecedented way. The sea level's rising very steadily as it has been since the last ice age. It does that very slowly, it continues to rise. What these are is predictions of climate change. So this is why the word climate change is so important. So there is warming and the theory predicts both that there is warming being caused by greenhouse gases and that the warming is going to lead to climate change that's bad. But almost all of the climate change that's bad is based upon the predictions of the models. And so that's why, if you actually look at the data, none of this stuff's actually happening yet. Even though we're constantly told weather isn't climate, right? So just because it's cold today doesn't mean global warming isn't happening, and it turns out that's true except whenever there's a hurricane or or a heat spell, and then suddenly weather is climate and it's a, it proves climate change, right? But if you actually look at the data, I won't. This is boring stuff, so I'll just show you a couple of these things. But hurricanes. Um, okay, so this one line is global, one is the northern hemisphere. Um, This is the global tropical cyclone, accumulated cyclone energy, so the sort of power of hurricanes uh, from about 1972 to the present. All you have to do is notice that there's a lot of variation, no trend. All right, this is the frequency of tropical cyclones. Okay, so how how frequent they are, now powerful, no trend. Uh, Same sort of thing, so global hurricane frequency, not just tropical cyclones, no trend. All right, so what's the point? Is that whatever you might think about those things, yeah, having more and more powerful hurricanes more frequently, those would be bad things, but there's no evidence any of that's happening. So whatever whatever warming's actually occurred hasn't led to any of those things. So you could always say, well, it's coming in the future, but then that's what people should say is we're worried this is gonna happen, but they're not saying that. They try to tell us that it's happening now, and if you actually compare the data, it's just simply not true final the other thing on this question of is it good, is that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is generally a good thing, okay? Plants need this, of course, to to work, right? We could not survive without this process in which we breathe out carbon dioxide and the plants use carbon dioxide uh, and then release oxygen back into the atmosphere. We also know that increases in atmospheric CO2 affect plant growth. This is Oh, I knew that was eventually gonna happen. This is an image, this is a research lab actually in Arizona uh, in which scientists, these are just little terraria, basically, and so just little greenhouses in which different plants are growing. They all have the same amount of sunlight and they put different concentrations of carbon dioxide in their atmospheres. And it turns out, in this, and plants vary in how much they uh, uh, are affected in this way, but you increase CO2 in general and you increase the speed and the, the, the sort of well-being of the plant itself. So CO2 is plant food. So you've got to take that into account whenever you're calculating things. In fact, below a certain number of parts per million uh, of CO2, plants quit, basically quit working. And so what's funny is only just about the last 10 years or so, I mean, we hear all about the deforestation of the Amazonian rainforest and things like that. Much of it, much of that is true, but we would assume that that means that the earth in general is getting more arid and, and less green. Uh, but in fact, you can do satellite imagery of the earth and essentially using spectral, spectral analysis, you can figure out what's actually happening in the, planet of the uh, surface of the planet. And so this is from a 2010 paper, very important, analyzing the trend from 1981 to 2006 of how green the planet is, in terms, in other words, how, how much sort of plant growth is there. LA, LAI just means leaf area index. Don't need to worry about it. What you do need to worry about is the fact that these scientists were so visually clueless that they used the color red to symbolize green, all right? <laughs> um, so, uh, But so basically what you have is dark spots, the purple or blue, that's places where it's gotten less green. And the redder it is, is places where it's gotten more green. Right? So this is from just 81 to 2006. So notice there are a few places uh, in in the desert of Australia where nobody cares anyway. And also in some places in South America where you get blue and purple. But most of the places, arid places, places where they grow stuff, uh, have gotten greener about 14% greener the earth has gotten, uh, almost entirely due to this aerial fertilization effect. So in other words, the effect, because a lot of these places aren't necessarily where farms are. Uh, they're places just where, where you know wild plants are growing. Um, I think I've got another slide. Okay, so this is a much better 2013 diagram than they got a graphic designer in there that said, Use green for green, Uh, all right? So it's the same thing, it it used uh, the previous uh, data and some other satellite data and updated it, and here you see dramatically uh, how it's affected. Essentially, any place where stuff is growing, uh, vast majority of these places, uh, as you can see, and here blue actually is really dark blue is even where it's really intense. So that's what carbon dioxide has done, right? So at the very least, there's a major trade-off Right, um, because this is gonna mean much more fertile uh, growing seasons and much more productive uh, plant life. My daughter, when she was in the sixth grade, um, I had her do a, a science experiment with this using wheat grass in which we added carbon dioxide to one and not to the other. And we put them in, in um, clear containers. And so you could see that the, the grass itself was, it was a little greener above, but the roots were twice as thick underneath in the ones that had additional carbon dioxide. All right. And then there's a sort of obvious point, I meant to pull this out, but if you just think about basic physical human life improvements, both in the things of cost of commodities, but life expectancy, number of calories, um, all these sorts of things, that the industrial revolution, whatever its costs, also has led uh, to a vast improvement, not only in average human life, but in the number of human beings that can actually exist. And so the world can, uh, you know, holds seven billion people now, and they could not do that if it were not for the process of industrialization. So even if there is a cost, it's gonna have to be balanced by the benefits, all right? And that's just a, it's another diagram showing the significant increase in well-being and life expectancy. Not nearly as dramatic from the, develop, the developed world, much more dramatic uh, in the developing world. And then finally, would the advised policies make any difference? Here's the kind of rubber meets the road question. Uh, Because even if everything, you know, as you can see, here's my view is we're in probably in a warming trend. I don't think the land measurements are all that reliable, but I think there's good reason to think we're in a modest warming trend. I suspect that we have some contribution to it, though I don't think that we know exactly what it is. Um, I don't think there's any reason to think that moderate warming of a few degrees is bad. I do think, say, if it was 10 degrees warming on average, that the costs would probably uh, exceed the benefits, but there's no reason to think that that's gonna happen. And so then you get to the fourth question. Whatever you think on those, is there anything that we could do realistically? As It would have to be a global policy Right, because the, the, the United States is funny, the United States is actually reducing uh, our carbon footprint relative to the number of people more dramatically than almost any other country right now but as a result we're going to become less and less significant as a contributor and India and China are going to become more significant so we could do all sorts of things and it would make almost no difference so anything we had to do would have to be something that the whole human community or most of it decided to do together so let's talk about and the actual policies, okay? Well, again, you have to, first of all, weigh all the costs and benefits, right? So, okay, what are the costs and what's gonna happen in terms of the the atmosphere and human health and plant life and stuff like that by the costs of an environmental policy, right? You can't just focus on that. Uh, and, And that's true even if it's bad, right? So the real question is, okay, let's assume Uh, that there's gonna be some kind of climate change that we don't know what to do with, what would be the best way to respond to it? Do we try to mitigate it? In other words, do we try to prevent it? Or do we try to adapt to it? Because if you think about it, um, any kind of change in the climate or anywhere else um, is going to affect the poor most dramatically. This is sort of obvious, but if you're well off, if you live someplace in Florida and it's unpleasant, You can move fairly easily. You can put air conditioning in. You can build a better house. If you're poor and you're stuck and you have no prospects, then whatever, whatever kind of change happens is more likely than not to harm you so what that would mean is whatever, in fact, happens, what we should want is for there to be less or fewer poor people, if possible, in which case what we want to do is focus on economic development and economic growth and well-being so that fewer people are vulnerable and unable to adapt for whatever change takes place. I think it's kind of a general principle, but let's focus on uh, what the UN and the global community are focusing on almost entirely, which is, okay, how do we prevent it? So we used to be talking about the Kyoto Protocol. That's that's no longer. And so now we have this thing called the Paris Accord, which is an agreement in Paris that some countries signed on to, that basically said, well, we're going to, okay, we're going to try to reduce our uh, carbon footprint, our you know, uh, uh, um, release of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases. Um, And we'll get back to you on the details, Uh, but based upon what these countries have have mostly agreed to do, let's assume best case scenario, these are their figures, best case scenario, all the countries comply, they start reducing uh, uh, the amount of, of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases they're putting into the atmosphere. This is their estimate based on their models of warming, all right, that by 2100, that could reduce the rate of warming, not cool the earth, reduce the rate of warming by 0.17 degrees Celsius, which is almost impossible even to measure. All right? So that would be the benefit, best case scenario. For the only real policy on offer that, by the way, is not going to happen. None of the countries that signed it are going to do anything. We didn't sign it, and we're actually doing it, uh, ironically. Almost entirely because we're moving more toward natural gas, which is less carbon intensive. So, in other words, very little effect. What would be the cost of this on the low end? Cost to do this, something like $1 or $2 trillion a year globally. Now, the estimates of the Copenhagen consensus is that we could probably outfit the parts of the world that do not have basic access to clean water with clean water initially for about $200 billion, right, one-time cost. Or we could spend $1 or $2 trillion a year doing something that doesn't make any difference under best-case scenario. Right? so this is just crazy from a policy perspective to think this is, you know, this is an entirely symbolic act with all cost. And virtually no benefit. And I, now these are their numbers; they're not mine. So I think we need to get real about these things and and realize: look, even if we're doing this, we need to quit fixating on really dumb policies. Unless we're going to actually bomb ourselves back to the Stone Age, kill off six billion people. Uh, whatever's happening, we need to come up with policies that make sense. And I think what makes sense. Is whatever happens is policies that increase the economic well-being of the rest of the world because it, what happens is that when people's per capita income gets to a certain level, they start getting interested in environmental stewardship. We're much more willing to spend money reducing the parts per billion of pollutants in our water than somebody who's down here economically and doesn't know where their next meal is coming from. It's called the, 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 the learning curve is green, the, the sort of development curve. And so what I think the best thing we could possibly do is to support policies globally uh, of, of economic growth and innovation, because we simply don't know and don't have control over exactly what the climate's going to do in the future. Thank you very much. First question. Given the data you presented, what motivates the strong consensus among global scientists anthropogenic climate change that is a real threat to us. Well, first, let's talk about consensus, because the consensus that you mostly have heard about is probably based on a paper by a cartoonist named John Cook, who did this poll uh, and claimed that 97% of, of scientists agreed with the basic claim that we're warming the globe and it's uh, human cause and it's catastrophic and look at the details and it's just completely made up uh, it's poorly worded it was worded in such a way that even hardcore climate skeptics would have agreed to it it's simply not true and as I, t- I told you the, de- the actual debate among knowledgeable climate scientists is about that climate feedback and any intellectually honest person that studies this will tell you this if, they do not tell, if they're not willing to talk about the feedbacks and say, yes, we don't understand that, well, they're, I'm sorry, they're just not being intellectually honest. That's where the debate is. The question would be, why do we think there is this perfect consensus um, among scientists? Uh, that is because of the mediation what, what a scientist will tell you when he or she is behind the scenes, assuming this person is honest, is usually going to be different from the kind of public front that's put on and so you'll have lots of I'm constantly encountering people when i'm at conferences on this subject uh that are dealing well it's okay in their particular area the 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 story doesn't seem to add up but they assume that everybody else's expertise and in every other area it's all matching up and you talk to somebody in another area and they tell you the same thing so a lot of them just kind of assume the story as well as everyone else if you're a dendrochronologist then your job is to figure out what the past climate was based on the growth of tree rings. Okay, that's your expertise. Tree rings doesn't give you any expertise in meteorology or solar <laughs> physics, right? Or logic, frankly. Um, and so these are highly specialized people. Most of them are per- per- really honest when they're talking about things within their subject. The truth of the matter is as you've noticed in some ways these climate questions are global questions having to do with policy and science and. Uh, and all sorts of things and the ability to evaluate pluses and and costs and benefits. Um, And so what I think has happened is this is the kind of semi-conspiratorial way of accounting for why is it so one-sided is something about what Patrick Moore said, that this is for many people the best way to gain political control over the economy. And so this is why for the UN, the solutions that they propose are never, okay, let's reduce... Um, bad regulation on business and improve business climate and improve the tax conditions and do things to increase economic growth. It's always increase the power of the UN and central governments over the economy, always, because that's what it's actually about. Uh, And and so that's what I think is going on. I do not think the average scientist in climate science is that's where they're coming from. I just think that's how it goes. The reality is the vast majority of what any of us have ever heard about in this subject we've gotten from newspapers and magazines, those are written by journalists. Those aren't written, for the most part, by scientists. So all this stuff's mediated by people who themselves are overwhelmingly biased on one side of the political spectrum. So you're getting all the data refracted through that stuff, unfortunately. First question is um give them a little ice age in this room to be a little, a little, a little bit warm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even, <laughs> Even I'm chilling. For every hundred dollars you in my hand, <laughs> I will raise the temperature of 25 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> it is crisp. How does subsidiarity, subsidiarity apply to environmental issues? Is climate change the focus of environmentalists because it cannot be addressed on the local level? Well, I don't know if there's that kind of calculation, but subsidiarity is directly related in this way. If you look at environmental policies, the ones that have overwhelmingly succeeded have been local ones or, or national ones. So the Cuyahoga River in Ohio, which you know people said at one point, uh, was never have fish in it again. Got cleaned up, um, and so the reason is again it's this kind of knowledge issue. Is that if you're in a local area and you know you're a rancher, and one other rancher upriver is dumping some stuff into the rivers and it's flowing downstream, you know what the problem is, and so you probably have some idea of what it would take to fix it. Um, when it comes to these larger issues, usually it's sort of high-flying theoretical things, and there's no obvious way to fix it in any particular way. And in fact, even policies that you would think would help end up backfiring. So things like the Environmental Species Act has a thing called the the Takings Provision, uh, which essentially says if you discover a habitat for an endangered species on your land, you need to report this to the Department of the Interior, and then the government can take it in the sense that they can tell you you're not allowed to use that land. So let's say you're a farmer in Pennsylvania and you, define, or you find some wild lupine on the edge of your, uh, of your farm. Turns out wild lupine is the unique food of the corner blue butterfly, which is an endangered species. Now you need the farm, right? You happen to let that part go fallow for a couple of years, but you need now to start planting crops. What are you going to do? You're gonna call the Department of the Interior? No, because the law has set you at enmity against that endangered species. So that your temptation is to, the policy is called shoot, shovel, and shut up, Uh, right? And this is what happens overwhelmingly. So again, a policy that if you were interested in actually preserving endangered species habitat, you would have set the law up in a way that would have encouraged landowners uh, to do, So say, you know, give them a major tax break. You would have farmers discovering endangered habitats all over the country, right? It's just basic non-stupidity applied to policy would solve these things. And so generally, insofar as subsidiarity has to do with, you know, as a, if I'm a parent and I'm competent, it is primarily my responsibility to care for my children because one, it's my responsibility, and two, I know the most about what my child needs what her allergies are, when she needs to go to bed, things like that. Same thing with environmental issues. When you're local, you're much more likely to be able to get a handle on what the problem is and how to fix it. Now, that doesn't mean some problems aren't local, right? So if you're talking about something that's affecting an entire region of the country, it may be that, okay, in that case, you need an agreement among that region. Um, and so that would be the relevant kind of jurisdiction of local. Uh, but notice that almost all the environmental things we talk about now, we're not really talking, we're talking about really obscure toxins that, or chemicals that we don't really know what their effects are. We're not talking about actual pollutants, sulfur in the water and in the air. And the reason is because we fixed that. You can drink water out of any tap in the United States, except maybe Flint, Michigan, uh, and you're fine. That is historically unprecedented. We've solved all of that environmental cleanness stuff, or 95% of it, and now we're talking about these highly abstract and theoretical things that supposedly affect the whole planet. Now, notice that shift. Last question. To what extent is research paganism or neo agnosticism uh, a driving force in the global world? It is absolutely uh, and uncontroversially a part of the deep ecology movement. And so there's no doubt about this. And in fact, Pope Francis talks about this in Laudato Si, that uh, what we do not want to have is an environmental movement or environmental care that displaces the human person as a sort of crowning achievement of the created order. But if you look at the deep ecology movement in particular, not all environmentalists, I'm talking but this is a major strand of the environmental movement, is deeply pagan, weirdly kind of contradictory, both materialistic, like Carl Sagan, total materialist, everything's just atoms colliding with atoms, blind forces of nature, but then also pantheistic, so that they elevate the created order to the place of God. So referring to the earth as Gaia, who can, sort of get us back for bad things that we do. That is a weird mix of atheist materialism and pre-Christian paganism that merges in the deep ecology movement. And so there's a reason it's anti-human and anti-family. That's not a coincidence. And so if we're gonna talk about these things and think about these things, we need to do them as Catholics. And in fact, Pope Francis points this out, Um, and I think it's on the next slide. I don't know if you guys still have control over the slides, but I wanted to end with this quote by Francis, but he's talking about how you got to expect people if they're going to be concerned, normal people to be concerned about the environment. He said, human beings cannot be expected to feel responsibility for the world unless at the same time their unique capacities of knowledge, will, freedom, and responsibility are recognized and valued. In other words, We can't, now yeah, maybe if you're a crazy deep ecologist, but the average person is interested in himself and his family and his community and things like that. Um, And if he's not valued, how can you expect him to value this much more abstract thing of the global ecology? In other words, if you're concerned about the physical ecology of the planet, you need to be concerned about the human ecology, that is our environment socially, the relationships between husbands and wives, Males and females, people of different races, parents, children, and families. The proper human ecology. And if you have a human ecology rightly construed, embedded in physical ecology, then you can have a robustly Catholic and true understanding of the created order. Thank you very much.